Hello, and welcome to The Big Picture, the podcast series on global events which comes to you from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This is the podcast companion to our Krasno Global Event series, which is available on our YouTube channel. The Krasno Global Event Series is hosted by Professor Klaus Laris, the Richard M. Krasno Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs here at UNC. The Big Picture is narrated and produced by myself, Willow Taylor Chang Yang, a Krasno Events Assistant. The Krasno Global Event Series is a regular series of talks and discussions with high-profile experts from around the world, aiming to enhance our understanding and comprehension of global affairs, past and present. This podcast seeks to boil down these talks on some of the crucial problems of our world to its main points and contribute to our greater understanding of world affairs. After listening to The Big Picture, we encourage you to head over to youtube.com slash UNC to watch the full event. Today's episode the U.S., China, and Taiwan relationships. Three speakers lend their expertise. Writer and podcaster Kaiser Kuo, who is the co-founder of the well-known Seneca podcast, which follows current affairs relating to Chinese politics and economy through discussions between Kuo and his guests. He is also editor-at-large at the news platform The China Project. Also joining us today is Dr. Shelley Rigger, professor of East Asian politics at Davidson College and author of multiple books on Taiwanese politics, culture, and economy including a recent 2021 release called The Tiger Leading the Dragon, How Taiwan Propelled China's Economic Rise. And last but not least, John Culver also joins us today. He worked for the CIA for almost four decades, including as the National Intelligence Officer for East Asia. Today's episode includes the full talk between the three guests and Professor Laris. For the first hour, each speaker presents their initial thoughts. For the next approximately 20 minutes, they respond to prepared questions, including those about the current Chinese President Xi Jinping's incentives with Taiwan, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's visit, and other topics. For the rest of the talk, they respond to curated questions from the Zoom audience. We hope you enjoy this episode of The Big Picture. Good afternoon, everyone. I would like to welcome you to our Krasno Global Event on Escalating Tensions, U.S.-China Relations, and the Taiwan Question. Today, we have three distinguished guests who will discuss this question with us. As always, the video recording of this event will be uploaded to our famous YouTube channel, that is youtube.com slash krasnounc. Incidentally, the video about yesterday's event, when Ambassador Jack Medlock talked about the life, politics and legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev, that video has already been uploaded. I'm Klaus Laris, I'm the Richard M. Krasno Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you all for joining us. We have a great international audience today with many people from China, Taiwan and Asia having joined us. Please submit your questions in writing via the chat function at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Our two Krasno assistants will select your questions and read them out aloud to all of us. We have three distinguished guests and experts today, as I said. There's Kaiser Ku, he is editor at large of SubChina, which is now called the China Project, and he is a host of the Sinica podcast and a most knowledgeable expert on all things Chinese. We also Thank have you. Professor Shelley Rigger of Davidson College in North Carolina. Shelley is perhaps America's leading expert on Taiwan and US-Taiwanese relations. 
And last but not least, I would like to welcome John Culver. John used to work for the National Intelligence Council and for the CIA, and I'm sure he gained many interesting insights by doing so. He has retired from these organizations now and is now a non-residential senior fellow at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. Initially, our three guests will make eight to ten minute remarks about how they see the current situation in the Taiwan Strait. I will then ask them a number of hopefully challenging questions. Subsequently, we will open it up to questions from you, the audience. Please submit your many questions in writing, as I said, via the, um, the chat function at the bottom of your screen. Please don't hesitate to do so. We are greatly looking forward to your questions. Once again, I would like to thank our three distinguished guests for joining us today. Perhaps we'll start with Kaiser Ku of the China Project and Sinica Podcasts. Kaiser, would you like to make your short initial remarks, please? Sure. Uh, thanks so much, Klaus, for inviting me uh, to be part of this. And it's a real delight to have Shelley Rigger and John Culver, who are two people who I respect enormously uh, and who are extraordinarily knowledgeable about this topic and, and many others, uh, and to have them here in Chapel Hill if only virtually. So uh, Taiwan is, of course, the mother of all U.S.-China issues. Uh, I should note at the top that it is not just a U.S.-China issue. We were talking about a prosperous and in many, many ways, a very admirable society of 25 million souls with their own agency and their own priorities and their own aspirations. Uh, I think it's very important to recognize uh, that uh, and that, you know, it's too often Taiwan is just kind of a chew toy in great power competition, and that is truly lamentable. Uh, but Klaus did ask me uh, to talk specifically about Taiwan in the U.S.-China relationship. So in the remarks that follow, if it does feel like I'm ignoring Taiwanese voices in this, it's only because of the topic assigned. But it is a huge issue, the central issue, I think most would say, in U.S.-China relations, the most likely flashpoint, to be sure, for any conflict an issue that is regarded rightly or wrongly uh, as a of one of vital strategic, that is to say national security importance by both China and the U.S. It's an economic choke point uh, for its preponderance in manufacturing the advanced semiconductors that really power modern economies, not just of the U.S. and China, but really of the entire industrialized world. Uh, even within the United States, it really sets to important facets of our own national character, our own character as Americans against each other. On the one hand, there is our emotional commitment and our ideological commitment to democracy, uh, our cultural propensity, I, I think, to root for the underdog. We do that. And let's face it, our deep abiding, but mostly unspoken psychological discomfiture at China's rise. And on the other hand, there is our at least notional commitment to honor what we said we would do and to continue to commit to the one child, uh, the one China policy and neither condone nor encourage de facto or de jure rather China, Taiwanese independence, a commitment that both originates in and is still buttressed by a certain pragmatism that, however grudgingly, recognizes, you know, the sheer size of the PRC just just a huge slice of of humanity uh as well as you know its economic heft uh, the seriousness of the conviction when it comes to taiwan that that uh, chinese people and chinese leaders especially hold and ultimately the abiding importance of avoiding conflict with china first and foremost uh so we have this you know emotional and sort of maybe uh sober intellectual uh commitments that butt up against one another when we look at the us and china and their positions when it comes to Taiwan, 
we see other fundamental and you might even say philosophical issues in play and at odds. Both Beijing and the U.S., uh, the supporters of Taiwan's independence in the U.S., they appeal to this idea of sovereignty and national self-determination. But the way that these two ideas are applied is radically, diametrically different, of course. Increasingly, Americans, including many lawmakers, frame the issue simply as one of a people with an increasingly distinct and separate sense of ethnic and political identity uh, as having... And, you know, as they, they should, a fundamental right uh, to national self-determination. That seems simple enough, right? But China also sees things in terms of sovereignty. It believes that a piece of Chinese territory recognized as part of the Republic of China remained uh, separate and was not absorbed by the People's Republic only because of direct American intervention uh, in the 1950s uh, during the Civil War. It pits, I think, in a, in a Chinese understanding which is perhaps overly burdened by and too firmly tethered to history against an American understanding, which is perhaps insufficiently burdened by and maybe too often totally, totally untethered from history. So China might well be criticized for nurturing and for continuing to give oxygen to historical grievances, to the century of humiliation through you know, patriotic education and other propaganda. But we Americans are as a nation, I think, also deserving of criticism for our often smug and dismissive ahistoricism and our total willful ignorance of history and its contingent nature and its demands on other people. I, I don't think it requires particularly formidable powers of imagination for us to be able to grasp how all that we have done lately on Taiwan must look from Beijing, does look from Beijing through the eyes of not just you know, Beijing's leaders, but but of ordinary people as well, uh, beginning with then President-elect Trump's telephone call with Tsai Ing-wen in December of 2016, we've seen what China would see as accelerating moves by the U.S. to break faith with what China has always understood as the status quo, a problematic idea that we'll talk about later, but increasing transits of the Taiwan Straits, visits by congressional delegations, of course, uh, subtle and not so subtle changes in language, uh, supposed gaffes three of them now, so maybe they're not gaffes uh, by Joe Biden on the question of U.S. military intervention on behalf of Taiwan, and all of this leading up to the Pelosi visit. Uh, in their mind, as with so many other issues with China right now, they're convinced that the, the American fixation with Taiwan, um, as they might describe it, owes more really to this desire to thwart China, to keep China down, to contain China, to box China in, uh, than it does to any genuine concern for the people of Taiwan or their political future. It really shouldn't be hard for anyone to see what things look like from China, to imagine what we Americans look like right now. Uh, my kids might use the word salty. Uh, we're worked up because of a perceived relative decline, a kind of creeping knowledge that our, our day in the sun, our reign as the untrammeled you know, global hegemon is coming to an end. And you know what? I think that they may not be entirely wrong. I mean, it would be actually pretty hard for anyone to convince me otherwise. Uh, there isn't some of that in the mix that it's kind of priming us, I think, to magnify any and all issues that we have with China to see as egregious, even relatively minor, uh, you know, sort of uh, transgressions by China. At the same time, China's own leadership, its diplomats, its media elites, they all seem equally unable to see what the PRC's behavior looks like and how galvanizing uh, a 
it is to uh, opinion in America. Uh, they've shown very little interest in understanding why American narratives in Taiwan are as they are. They tend to just chalk it up to basic xenophobia, born of this abiding fear of being eclipsed by a rising China. Uh, its efforts to keep Taiwan out of the WHO, even as you know, so much blame was being directed at Beijing during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic, its behavior toward countries like Lithuania, over what to, I think to most observers looked like pretty inconsequential matters, uh, this all helped to reinforce very negative impressions that China was petty and, and histrionic and bullying. Uh, Beijing and its spokespeople, whether in the foreign ministry, these wolf warriors, or in the state-owned media, have, have indulged plenty of their own ahistoricism, too, I should hasten to add. They are highly selective about what historical episodes they want to foreground and uh, which ones they completely and very conveniently ignore. Uh, moreover, Beijing seems unwilling to adjust its approach, even in the face of pretty indisputable uh, evidence that uh, they have failed to win hearts and minds, chiefly that Taiwanese is now overwhelmingly the primary identity for people in Taiwan, becoming more so that the one country, two systems formula is viewed again, by an overwhelming majority as completely non-viable, especially after what we saw in Hong Kong, the protests of 2019 and 2020, and the imposition of the national security law. Uh, it hasn't helped for Beijing that so many also of the reporters who covered China for American media outlets are now based in Taipei. Uh, this has helped move Taiwan-related issues to center stage, and I would not be at all surprised if already quite sympathetic coverage about the issues has shifted more in that direction because now of where the reporters are, who they talk to day to day, the narratives that they absorb. Uh, effectively expelling these journalists, whether or not it was defensible given the effective you know, expulsions of Chinese journalists from the US, it has done uh, quite a bit of reputational damage and lost Beijing support on the Taiwan issue. So I want to just close with a few gems of wisdom from people who are far wiser than me uh, that I think Americans... Uh, really should keep top of mind when trying to decide how we should move forward on on Taiwan. Uh, Shelley, who is with us, of course, uh, has once said that you know we need to remember that not everything bad for China is good for Taiwan, and not everything good for Taiwan is bad for China. We are clearly not taking that to heart yet. Another thing uh, that was said by uh, Richard Bush, uh, I'm told, he recently warned that we are in danger of loving or hugging Taiwan to death. I can't remember, Shelley, if it was loving or hugging, but uh, one of them. Anyway, we're, we're, we're loving them to death. Um, and, you know, Paul here, who I've spoken to about the Taiwan issue many times, who was a colleague of John Culver here uh, for many, many years, uh, who has a great new essay out, by the way, in the American interest, reminds us that Beijing is not looking for reasons to attack Taiwan. It's looking for reasons not to. And it's actually not difficult for us to supply such reasons. We know how to do it. Meanwhile, I am really convinced that much of what the U.S. is doing ostensibly to weaken China or to help Taiwan is actually quite short-sighted and is ultimately at cross-purposes with those goals. Taipei has long, for example, counted on a silicon shield, which deters any potential attack uh, from China uh, because, well, China is totally dependent, like so many other countries are, like we are, on advanced semiconductors from Taiwan. If we prevent TSMC, uh, Taiwan's you know, powerhouse uh, advanced semiconductor manufacturer, if we prevent it from exporting its products to China as we want to, what happens? Not only do we you know, basically destroy or weaken, cripple one of Taiwan's core strategic industries, but we also remove a 
significant disincentive for China to make a move. So we might want to think about the impact on Taiwan also of the CHIPS Act that many of us have spoken approvingly of. Look, no matter what we do, whether it's making Taiwan into an impenetrable hedgehog with defense in depth and the capacity to resist, or whether it's building out our own advanced semiconductor manufacturing capabilities and weaning ourselves off of this dangerous dependence uh, on, on Xinju, on, or, or if, if it's outlasting this last generation uh, that has a living memory of the Civil War, waiting for them to die so that people with much less emotional investment can maybe rethink the issue with a little more detachment. The thing that we need, no matter what, is time. If that means that Taiwan has to suffer relative diplomatic isolation for another couple of decades even, I still think that is massively preferable to having a nominally sovereign smoldering ruin, a global financial meltdown, deaths ranging into the hundreds of thousands, and war with a nuclear superpower. Thank you Thanks. very much. Thank you very much, Kaiser. This was very insightful, as always. But I noticed you haven't mentioned the name Nancy Pelosi. I did oh, briefly. I did. Well, I did, how, just at the time. How, how damaging was that visit, or wasn't it damaging at all? Will it just be forgotten within a few months? I think that it was a, a nail in a, a coffin. I think that, that there, anyone who had any lingering doubt that the United States was intent on hollowing out uh, its policy, that, that this was sort of the, the last critical slice of salami uh, that was gone. And I think that uh, we should not uh, dismiss the reaction uh, fr from Beijing. I think this has shifted things into what I, I believe is really a fourth Taiwan Straits crisis. Thank you. And you also mentioned that um, um, Biden committed a number of gaffes when he referred to a military support for Taiwan. Were these gaffes or were that, was that military, uh, a deliberate statement to warn off China? Yeah, so I, I, I have a lot of difficulty believing they were pure gaffes, but then this is Joe Biden we're talking about, so maybe it's not so hard to believe. I don't know. I, I really don't know. This is one of those questions that I'll ask St. Peter. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I really don't know. Okay. And also, you said at the beginning of your talk that you saw the end of the American influence in the Pacific in, the, in a way. Is that going to happen? And when would you expect that? So I don't, I don't necessarily see that. But I think that, uh, what, what, that a lot of Americans have this sense of decline of our influence. I, th I do worry about it. I mean, I think there's, there was a, a, right now, we're not providing much in the Western Pacific except for security. And as a uh, Evan Feigenbaum, a former diplomat who now is at, at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, is, he said that Americans now in, in East Asia are in danger of becoming the Hessians of Asia, that we do nothing or nothing more than just mercenaries, right. which is a depressing reality. Okay. Thank you very much. We will discuss that further, but let's turn to our next speaker. That is uh, Professor Shelley Rigger of Davidson College, and we can't wait to hear you talk. Shelly, over to you. Well, thank you so much. And it's uh, kind of both very difficult and also quite nice to follow such a masterful overview. I watched or listened to Kaiser go from the sort of big picture, what is this Taiwan issue? Where does it come from? Through to where does the US PRC Taiwan triangle stand today. So thank you, Kaiser, for setting that up so beautifully. 
and for uh, pulling the audience in with some of that uh, background information that allows us to move forward. So I think what I'll do is to uh, fill in one of the acknowledged uh, lacunae in Kaiser's comments, which is the Taiwanese voice in all of this, right? So what the question that um, it's hard for people not to ask is what does Taiwan think? As if Taiwan is a monolith with a single brain that thinks anything, right? But I think when people ask that question, what they mean is what is the central tendency in Taiwan public opinion? And what do we need to know in order to understand whether our actions are aligned with, that is to say, the actions of individuals or organizations in the United States are aligned with the interests and preferences of our Taiwan friends or not? So this is something that is surprisingly difficult to really fully understand as surprising because Taiwan is just about the most surveyed society in the world. In 2005, I was living in Taipei for a few months and I actually got called. There was an old landline in the apartment and I answered the phone and it was a survey. And I said to the guy, you know, you don't want to ask me survey questions because I'm a foreigner. And he said, no, no, I've never interviewed a foreigner before. Please answer my questions. Unfortunately, they were mostly about brands of vegetables. So they were not, uh, you know, I didn't get to say my opinion of uh, President Chen Shui-bian at that time or anything like that. But um, it, it brought home to me how frequently people in Taiwan are surveyed. And yet, with all of this data out there, it's really hard to know how the wide spectrum of opinion within Taiwan on any issue really breaks down. And in particular, where people are in relation to evolving and emerging events. And so many events are evolving and emerging in the Taiwan Strait at this moment that I think we really don't have a good handle on uh, the sort of central tendencies or the spectrum of views within Taiwan. But um, I just want to say a little bit about uh, where, why it's so difficult and what some of the most important observations we can make about uh, Taiwanese public opinion and elite opinion about the current crisis, the if we want to call it the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis might be. So one of the questions that is constantly asked of me, especially in Washington, and I'm sure John has heard this question many times, is why are Taiwanese not more anxious about their situation? Right. You know, in the United States, many people are quite convinced that uh, the, you know, the, the catastrophe is looming just out of sight for Taiwan. And that if Taiwanese had any sense at all, you know, they'd be in a state of blind panic all the time. And so I'm frequently asked, like, why are they not? I'm, I'm freaking out over here. Why are Taiwanese people acting so calm? Why are they, for example, at the height of these tensions over the summer, announcing huge investments in new industrial capacity 
on the island of Taiwan. Uh, TSMC, other semiconductor companies announced big projects in Taiwan right at the most uh, critical moment. So one reason that people in Taiwan do not feel the pressure of their existential situation more acutely, or they don't appear to feel it more acutely, is that it has been going on now for 70 years, right? Seven zero years of perpetual conflict, low burning, but nonetheless quite evident conflict with the People's Republic of China. They have coexisted with a high level of kind of rhetorical threat. Um, you know, we hear the stuff that Xi Jinping and other PRC leaders say today, and we say, wow, that's really scary. But go back and read some of the things that uh, Mao Zedong and other leaders said in the 1950s about liberating Taiwan by force and throwing out, you know, the American imperialists. Uh, this is not a new experience for Taiwanese to live under a sense of threat. So it started to feel like, you know, there's a up in the ceiling of the temple, there's an old sword and it has been up there so long, it's completely crusted over with incense ash and dirt and dust and spider webs and all this stuff that's up there. And you don't even notice it anymore. You just, you know, it's up there, but you live under it relatively uh, unaffected. However, I would agree with Kaiser that we are in a new situation as of the last month to two months. It's as, you know, in a, in a cartoon or in a movie, you know, that you would, you would watch the threads that are holding that sword up into the ceiling of the temple kind of fraying and it dropped a couple of inches and it's still hanging up there. It hasn't fallen, but the ash got knocked off by the jolt and we can see that blade is still plenty sharp, maybe sharper than it was when it got up there, uh, you know, 70 years ago. So there is a new situation. My uh, assessment of what has happened over the period, especially since the Pelosi visit, is that the level of PRC readiness and willingness to act upon its dissatisfaction with what the U.S. is doing has kind of ratcheted up, taken a significant step up, and will not ratchet all the way back down. You know, we've had sort of the needle has, has gone up on the dial before, but it usually comes back down. I think, you know, I think we're sticking at a high level of tension this time. So Taiwanese need to come to terms with the possibility that uh, the catastrophe actually is closer than they realized. And I think there is some evidence to suggest that they are. We don't see it in most of our media coverage when we listen to the statements by Taiwanese leaders, for example, speeches that uh, President Tsai Ing-wen made around the time of the Pelosi visit, they are very enthusiastic, they are very supportive. 
the Taiwanese government is certainly trying to put a good face on everything that is happening. But uh, anecdotally, in my interactions with people in and from Taiwan, there is a gathering sense of the situation is headed in the wrong direction. And it causes them to react uh, or to, to be particularly sensitive and reactive on two questions. One is, will the PRC actually attack Taiwan? So there's a, you know, there's a debate in Taiwan that has always existed at a kind of much more um, low level that is now a more active debate. You know, will, will the PRC actually use military force to achieve its objective of annexing Taiwan to the People's Republic of China? And if it does, is Taiwan capable of defending itself? And then there's another debate, which is actually, I think, even more out there in public, which is what will the U.S. do? Will the U.S. defend Taiwan or not? And here's where I want to at least propose the hypothesis that actions U.S. officials have taken recently are counterproductive. Because if you ask or if you go back and you listen to her press conferences, uh, Speaker Pelosi, what was your intention in going to Taiwan? It was to give Taiwanese people confidence that we will defend Taiwan. Uh, if we, you know, if you ask the Biden administration, why are you sending these messages? Same thing. We want to make Taiwanese people more confident. But I think Taiwanese, some Taiwanese, many Taiwanese are asking themselves, um, is the U.S. doing these things? Is the U.S. escalating its competition with the PRC? Is the U.S. signaling on Taiwan? in its actions toward Taiwan, that it is committed to Taiwan and the defense of Taiwan? Or is the signal we are determined to tweak Beijing, to show toughness to Beijing, to push back on Beijing? And Taiwan is just a kind of convenient uh, tool for doing that. And people in Taiwan are not stupid. They recognize that if all you are is a tool, there is no reason to expect that you are going to be defended should that requirement or that occasion finally arise. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of wondering whether uh, the message that uh, folks in Taiwan are beginning to get is that, that, you know, this isn't about us at all. This is about the U.S. and the PRC. This is about U.S. domestic politics. So we better watch out because if all this is is posturing for cameras, either whether the, the cameras are broadcasting to the United States or to the PRC, then uh, we really are a pawn and anything could happen. Thank you very much, Shelley. That's um, very interesting thoughts and very provocative thoughts as well. We will discuss it in a minute. Um, we read in the press that the anti-Chinese sentiments in Taiwan, particularly among the young, are constantly increasing. Do you have an idea how strong still the pro-Chinese sentiment still is in Taiwan? 
where you know where people are not being drawn into the recent uh, 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 episodes and where they continue to have a feeling of belonging with China. I think the idea of belonging with the PRC as a political entity is uh, almost zero <laughs> in Taiwan. There are people who imagine a unified China, but generally speaking, they are not imagining a, a Taiwan unified with the PRC. They are imagining a different entity in the mainland, one that is uh, welcoming to Taiwan's democratic institutions. But the idea that Taiwanese are culturally and in terms of their ancestry and heritage connected to China is still very real. What I think most Taiwanese would, where they differ from the, the PRC leadership is in equating that culture and heritage with some kind of national identity or citizenship or political identity. And so, you know, 25 years ago, the conversation about whether Taiwan is a Chinese, like an, a historically uh, Chinese place or not, was very hot in Taiwan. That's not such an interesting debate in Taiwan anymore. What has sort of displaced the idea of constructing a Taiwanese identity that is stripped of its Chinese uh, core is a conviction that what matters is, is to live in a free and democratic society. So as the PRC becomes less free and more undemocratic, not that it was ever uh, particularly free or democratic to begin with, but as the PRC surveillance state, for example, has intensified, that has increased the uh, alienation and even hostility that many people in Taiwan feel toward the PRC, especially young people who are in many cases interested in China, interested in the mainland, but just can't see themselves there under the Xi Jinping regime. So like under Hu Jintao, yes, they could, they could imagine themselves living, working, studying, whatever in the mainland, but not under the, the way China is under Xi Jinping. Mm, thanks very much indeed. And what do the Taiwanese people, you know, if we, I know Taiwanese people is difficult to, to uh, say, but what does the majority perhaps of the population think about their own military capabilities? Do they believe they can actually defend themselves against an invasion or blockade? Um, and does also the, the, what is happening in Eastern Europe with the Ukraine war influence the Taiwanese thinking uh, themselves? So this is one of the most disconcerting aspects of, and, and it feels like a disconnect because on the one hand, people are not freaking out about the possibility of being attacked by the People's Liberation Army. But on the other hand, most of the surveys that we have would suggest that they do not have high confidence in the ability either of their own military or uh, in the ability of the US to intervene the ability and willingness of the U.S. to intervene quickly enough and effectively enough to protect them. And this is something that I think the where the Ukraine war and something Kaiser said becomes really important. 
I, another factor driving many Taiwanese people's uh, lack of urgency around the military threat for many years was a kind of conviction that, that I think was widely shared internationally, not just in Taiwan, that uh, the worst kind of war was a relic of the 20th century, that we weren't going to see that anymore. You know, we weren't going to see tanks rolling in. We weren't going to see aerial bombardment of civilians ever again, that that's just not what happens in the 21st century. And the Ukraine war has made it very clear that that was uh, wishful thinking, right? 20th century war is back with a vengeance. And now I think it's suddenly very clear that a war in the Taiwan Strait means old women on fire, it means children exploded into bits. It's not just, um, you know, aerial combat. It's not Top Gun Maverick. And it is a very sobering realization. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Yes, indeed it is. John Culver, over to you. And John, is uh, if you want to give away top secret information <laughs> to us, feel free, please. No, thanks. I'm not going to follow certain presidents very much in the press these days. Um, uh, but it's de it's depressing hearing these topics, despite uh, how well they're they're you know conveyed by Shelley and by Kaiser. Um, so I, I'm probably just going to hire hang a bit more crepe uh, and then try to be optimistic. But it's very hard to be optimistic because the the factors, say the three pillars that used to provide stability in this trilateral relationship between the U.S. Taiwan and China have all eroded and they've eroded kind of very quickly um, or they were eroding and then it, it just sort of manifested within the span of five or six years. It used to be that the great constraint and the great factor promoting stability was a strategic relationship between China and the United States that was built during the Cold War, survived in the post-Cold War um, because China was too focused on um, pursuing its own goals, mostly economic development, and because they didn't want the uh, global hegemon, the United States, as they saw us, to put a target on them on them next. Um, but also because they had leadership in Taiwan, more often than not, that um, wasn't going to push this issue. Um, Taiwan was, you know, at the time that I started working at CIA, was still under a military dictatorship. Um, it didn't really start to democratize until the late 80s. Um, and you know now it's its progress is really remarkable. But that us China relationship and the need in both Beijing and Washington for stability um, and even to cooperate in some areas was a real constraint because in most of the past crises, like in the mid 90s and then tension um, in the in the 2000s, um, it was the U.S. that constrained uh, what was seen as pro-independent sentiment on Taiwan um, that used to you know, kind of in, in, indirectly vet Taiwan politicians who were going to be running for the highest office in that country um, and would clearly signal, like in the Obama administration, the first time that Tsai Ing-wen ran for the, the presidency as a DPP candidate, they kind of gave her a thumbs down after seeing her in Washington. And that was, you know, greatly resented by some people on Taiwan and some of the United States. But it was the U.S. at that time behaving within the framework that Kaiser and and Shelley have intimated. The other the other pillar was um, for decades clear U.S. military superiority. 
Um, and it was really demonstrated in the mid-90s during a nine-month Taiwan Strait crisis, what's now known as the third Taiwan Strait crisis, that all we had to do was show up, that an aircraft carrier battle group was a win button, uh, to use that phrase. Um, and China had no answer to that. The, the idea that they, they didn't even have the means to cross the Taiwan Strait in large numbers uh, at, from a cold start, but we had enormous capability to make sure that they would fail. Um, that's no longer true. The PLA is arguably the second most powerful military force on the planet. Um, as DOD revealed in their annual report to Congress last fall, um, the Chinese uh, are moving away from a minimal nuclear deterrence or on course to build a thousand nuclear warheads, uh, quintupling the size of their current force um, by the end of, of this decade. Um, and that also says something about how China views the prospects for great power war, as Shelley intimated. Um, the, the Chinese also drew that lesson from Ukraine, that the era when uh, peace and stability were the dominant trends, as Xi Jinping likes to tell President Biden, is under severe stress. And for the first time since the end of the old Cold War, uh, the prospect of major power war and even nuclear war back on the table. Um, and so I think people on Taiwan are right to question, you know, if the U.S. wouldn't get directly militarily involved in Ukraine, not that we haven't done a lot to arm and buttress the U Ukrainians, um, are we really going to go to war with the nuclear power over Taiwan? And uh, that's a question no one in Washington seems to want to talk about. Um, everyone acknowledges that Russia is a dominant nuclear power and it would be folly to declare uh, a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Um, or to break the Russian blockade in the Black Sea of Ukrainian ports. But people talk blithely about going to war with China over Taiwan, as if we wouldn't face the same kind of consideration. Um, the other pillar that's eroded is um, China is no longer a weak country. Uh, in the past, when there were um, crises with the United States because of um, the U.S. accidentally bombing their embassy in Belgrade in the former Yugoslavia in 1999. There was great public anger in China. There was protest in the streets. They used rocks to destroy our embassy almost as effectively as we used um, advanced you know, weapons to destroy their embassy in Belgrade. Um, but it was understood, I think, by the Chinese government and then accepted by the Chinese people in 1999 that China did not have the military or economic strength to respond proportionately to what they viewed as a deliberate attack by the United States. Um, China no longer has weakness as an excuse. You know, when Secretary, or when, yeah, when, when Speaker Pelosi's plane flew into Taiwan um, in early August, um, the Chinese uh, censors were busy censoring Chinese social media because one of the dominant moods they were seeing is why haven't we shot her aircraft down? Why haven't we intercepted it with Chinese fighters? And so they have kind of a problem like we do in some cases of ultra nationalism, especially among some younger Chinese who have never known a weak China, who don't remember the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, who have only known a rising China and have been indoctrinated with years of video of the mighty People's Liberation Army. And so I, I think that if we had another crisis like a Belgrade embassy bombing or when in, in 2001, when a Chinese fighter aircraft collided with the US reconnaissance aircraft um, off China's coast, 
you know, in, in 19, in 2001, that issue was resolved in 11 days. I think if that happened today, it would, it wouldn't be wrapped up for months and perhaps years. It would be more like the Pueblo incident with North Korea because China views itself and the expectations of its people are that they are a strong country and that they will respond to deep insult with power rather than with submission. Um, so that's all that happy talk. One thing I'd add, I picked up the thread that I think Kaiser started about um, kind of the assumptions I still hold about the China-Taiwan issue. Um, one is that, uh, to uh, paraphrase him, Taiwan remains a crisis to be avoided for Xi Jinping, not an opportunity to be seized. Um, he has a lot on his plate. You know, today the Chinese announced that they're shutting down Chengdu for COVID. Um, that's a city of 21 million people and a key manufacturing center. Um, Chinese economy is struggling like really it never has, largely due to these COVID restrictions um, ever since reform and opening started. I think they're technically in a recession, although the government still claims modest GDP growth in order to avoid that tag. Um, he's got a party Congress mid in mid-October where he'll um, probably succeed in um, being nominated and agreeing to, to, to have a third term as party general secretary, president of China and chairman of the Central Military Commission. Um, and so uh, he, he then looks longer term out and things that keep him awake at night. And he has to worry about Chinese demographic trends, which like Taiwan, China is now a rapidly aging society. So a lot of the you know demographic benefit that, that earned them their prowess as, a top, as the top manufacturing nation in the world um, are now going to be challenged. And they have to bring in a lot more automation, a lot more robots, just to kind of maintain their place as they also try to shift from an export and investment-driven economic model to one more driven by consumption. So this issue is one that I think for Beijing, they feel is forced upon them. You know, they weren't looking for a problem this summer. Um, that said, uh, I think we are in a fourth Taiwan crisis. I was commenting before we began with, with your other guests that um, it, it kind of has a Guns of August feel to uh, paraphrase um, Barbara Tuckman's book, that um, it seems like there was a lot of you know shouting and chest beating uh, a month ago, and now it's over. Well, actually it isn't over. You know, every day since Pel Speaker Pelosi left Taiwan, Chinese Air Force is doing unprecedented things. They're flying aircraft over the mutually acknowledged but unofficial center line in the middle of the Taiwan Strait. And instead of doing it as they've done for two years in the southwest corner of Taiwan's air defense identification zone, 200 nautical miles from the island, they're doing it in the northern and central areas where they're 50 miles um, from being over Taipei. So they, they did some un unprecedented things um, in the exercise after Speaker Pelosi went to Taiwan. Um, they flew ballistic missiles directly over the island for the first time, um, including some that landed in Japan's claimed ADIS or I'm sorry, EEZ. Um, they surrounded Taiwan with these miss missile, Im missile impact areas, um, which uh, is sort of reminiscent of something they did in 96, but on steroids. So they, and they even they even called their drill a blockade drill, um, and so uh, I, I think you know one thing that I think listeners might need to know is we got used to thinking of the PLA as sort of a noisy demonstration army. You know they would make loud noises, stage 
operatic exercises when something made them angry, but they haven't been to war since 1979. Um, that The PLA hasn't been a noisy demonstration army for 20 years. Um, in each case where their sovereignty has been challenged over that time, um, whether it's the Senkaku, Diaoyutai Islands uh, dispute with Japan, the South China Sea dispute or border dispute with India, the military has, without inflicting mass lethality, nonetheless changed the status quo. Um, and I think that's what they're doing on the Taiwan Strait now. I think we're going to see a continued repetition of the unprecedented things they did if, if provoked uh, sufficiently again. And they're going to do new things, things they have never done, um, that would really force Taiwan to make a decision whether they have to shoot first. For example, they could fly manned or unmanned aircraft directly over the island of Taiwan um, and sort of dare Taiwan to shoot. Um, they could start to send their Navy and the world's largest Coast Guard inside Taiwan's territorial limit, both around the main island and about these around these offshore islands that Taiwan held, some of which are right in the Chinese coast, some of which are a bit further away, like the Penghu's. So there's, you know, it, it, it kind of, I want to remind people that we tend to frame Chinese options as do nothing or invade. Um, this is not a, a, you know, light switch that's either on or off. They have enormous capacity across entire span of, of domains, economic, political, diplomatic, information, legal uh, domains, in addition to military domain, um, to continuously ratchet up the pressure, you know, and at the end of the day, I agree with Kaiser, what the Chinese want, even in terms of unification, if they ever announce their intent to bring that to closure sooner rather than later, um, what they, what they, what they want is a political settlement they can call reunification. They don't want a red flag flapping over the rubble of Taipei, but at the same time, if Taiwan or Washington or the two in combination cross what's clearly to the Chinese a red line, uh, they will go to war. It may not look like the war that we've all imagined, the D-Day type invasion. It will be an open-ended period of hostility. And East Asia, would ha which has been the driver of global economic growth for 30 years, will become a war zone. And it won't be limited to the Taiwan Strait. The Chinese Liberation Army now has, the People's Liberation Army has the capacity to strike every U.S. base in East Asia. Um, to kill or disable U.S. satellites in outer space um, and to break a lot of the key economic lifelines that made even China prosperous, let alone Taiwan. Um, so that's not a, a, a bridge they want to cross. But at the same time, this strong historical aggrievement that Kaiser mentioned you know, is a real thing. Even if, even if Xi Jinping doesn't feel that aggrieved, they've trained the Chinese people for three generations to feel hostility at China's treatment during the century of humiliation. And then in the more recent past kind of China's treatment um, today, I think that's one of the reasons, you, you know, I can agree with Kaiser that wolf warrior diplomacy is the opposite of diplomacy and it achieves negative net good for China. So you have to ask yourself why they're doing it. It's because they're addressing that nationalistic public opinion. And that is China's and the Communist Party's le legitimacy, which had rested for 40 years on economic growth, appears to be facing an, a, a tougher uphill road in delivering on those public expectations. They're going to double down and they are doubling down on nationalism. 
And so I find all these trends very troubling. You know, the, the, the main kind of binding agent between the United States and China and at the time tertiary between Taiwan was we have no solution to this, you know, conundrum. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem left over from history that now is getting amplified in the 21st century. And so our impulse, I think, for both the United States and China was to kick this problem down the road. You know, stick to this policy of strategic ambiguity, because anything that we did to try and solve the problem or realize a free and independent Taiwan, which, you know, mind you, built itself into a vibrant, prosperous democracy over the course of this uh, policy of strategic ambiguity, um, that anything we did to try and solve this or resolve it would actually produce the war we've been trying to avoid. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> So you are advocating for a status quo policy, really, before Pelosi's visit, you know. Um, I would argue that we can achieve our goals and help Taiwan secure its legitimate security goals under the current policy. There was a wonderful tweet today written by um, Congressman Chris Murphy from Connecticut that uh, talked about this. And he talked about the problem in Washington of people who are kind of bandwagoning onto this idea that, you know, we need a more robust uh, and determined policy and the strategic ambiguity was holding us back. Um, strategic ambiguity is a policy that's been holding us back. For one thing, uh, if we violated it overtly and clearly, and there are bills in Congress that if passed as currently drafted would do precisely that, um, then China would go to war, as I just said. So, you know, if, if we need to buttress Taiwan's defense or help it buttress its own defense, we have been doing that for 50 years. We can keep doing it uh, with the current policy of strategic ambiguity, with self-imposed restrictions on the level of, high, of visits between the two places. Um, you know, the Chinese have had to assume for years as conservative military planners that any war over Taiwan would involve the full, you know, involvement of the United States. So um, suddenly declaring that openly wouldn't add to deterrence. It would just provoke the crisis. Yeah, thank you. Um, before the war in Ukraine, the Americans and also the British uh, had surprisingly good intelligence information about what was happening in Moscow and at the front line. How good is our intelligence information about what China is up to, both in military terms, but also political terms? Um, it's hard for me to characterize that. I've been retired for a couple of years, going on three years, um, and I wouldn't want to convey either overconfidence or, you know, negativity. Um, it's a constant problem. You have to um, continue to check your, your assumptions and test them when possible through real world data and evidence. Um, I think on the whole, um, the U.S. government has had a very good handle. Uh, like, I'm sure that no analyst inside my former agency was surprised that the Chinese reacted to Speaker Pelosi's visit the way they did. Um, in, in fact, they kind of underperformed because they didn't do some of the more menacing things that I noted. Um, but I think China is a harder target than it was even 10 years ago. Um, it's a more restrictive society. Um, as, as the Chinese, even before... Xi Jinping took the leadership roles, you know, going back 10 years ago now, they, they have a very paranoid view of the United States and they saw color revolutions and the Arab Spring, and they really started to harden their whole system, even by 2010. 
Um, and I think today, you know, trying, and they've also become very technologically proficient. So you can never rest on your laurels, but I also think that in this kind of, on this topic, China, Taiwan, there really are no secrets that are very long in duration. I think that they play out pretty quickly in the real world through Chinese policy um, and uh, reciprocally for the United States, that there's no secret plan, you know, to launch an invasion of Taiwan tomorrow. And I'm relatively confident about that, not because of intelligence, you know, other than the mental kind, because if China was going to go to war over Taiwan and it assumed that would involve the full-throated military intervention of the United States, it would not be subtle or secret for very long. They would do a full national mobilization. They would have to ready their population through press to prepare for uh, economic um, hardship, to prepare for body bags coming home to you know, parents and grandparents for the first time in two generations. Um, and they would have to prepare for a long war because uh, again, as conservative military planners, um, I don't think they ever assume that everything's going to go great. You know, they've seen what happened to the Russians in Ukraine by being overly optimistic about what a second Ukrainian war would look like. So the lessons the Chinese are drawing from the Ukraine war, what do you think these lessons are? I think they're surprised how bad the Russians performed because, you know, it wasn't just that they didn't do exotic things well. They, they failed to do World War II style combined arms operations in a competent manner where you coordinate air, ground, and uh, other assets to produce a battlefield result. Uh, they failed miserably. And I think they do maybe want to take a second look at Taiwan's will to defend themselves. Um, it's easy to write Taiwan off as a military power. Um, it, it, it's a rich country. It has GDP six times Ukraine's and per capita GDP of Taiwan is about 10 times at least Ukraine's. Um, but their military is two-thirds smaller today than it was 10 years ago. Um, they, their total defense budget of 17 billion, which I think they're raising now to 19 billion, it's less than TMSC spends every year on market capitalization. Um, it wouldn't buy an aircraft carrier in the United States. And so um, when they do spend their money though, that $17 billion, when they buy weapons from us, they tend to buy very expensive high-end capability, most of which a lot of analysts believe would be irrelevant in war. Uh, it would be airplanes that couldn't get off the ground because their runways had all been destroyed by Chinese missiles in the first hours of a war. It would be main battle tanks that can't cross most of the bridges in Taiwan today. Um, uh, so that's why you keep hearing US advocates for Taiwan defense arguing that they'd adopt this porcupine strategy, which Taiwan's government has done nominally. But um, it, it's it's going to be a tough road. And it, it's hard to justify, you know, the kind of support we're giving to Ukraine when to a lot of Americans, they kind of question the extent to which Taiwan is willing to expend effort on its own defense, including uh, right now, they only have four months of military service for conscripts. Um, I don't know if you were ever in the armed forces, but you might fire your gun one time in that four months. They have no ready reserves. So they have, you know, a population of 23 or 24 million, but military service is kind of looked down upon. And I kind of defer to Shelley on this point. Um, for a long time, the military in Taiwan, you know, was the armed wing of the Kuomintang party, just like the PLA is the armed wing of the Communist Party. 
Um, and they were the, you know, they were kind of the uh, armed wing of martial law. That was the military that was suppressing dissent and the Taiwan intelligence services. And I think that left deep marks. So even today, people on Taiwan who feel strongly about the need to strengthen their self-defense may not want to invest their only son in that venture. Um, and they may not want to spend uh, money on a bigger defense budget for a war that may never come. Thank you very much. Maybe a few questions to all of our speakers before we then open it up to uh, questions from the audience. And we have already uh, quite a few questions uh, which have been asked. What about the role of Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader? What, as far as we know, do we know what he is thinking? Does he want to achieve some sort of unification with Taiwan under whatever auspices during his third term, his likely third term in office? Or would he be happy to wait until uh, uh, 2049, the 100-year anniversary of the Chinese Revolution? Ch uh, Kaiser, what do you think? Well, I think to some extent, um, when we've been talking about what China wants, uh, and I, I'm speaking for myself for sure, but I, I, I maybe I presume that, that John and Shelley both agree, we are talking about what Xi Jinping himself wants. Uh, he has an extraordinary level of personalistic uh, control there. But I actually have a kind of counterintuitive take on, on what that means. I think that the fact that he has arrogated to himself these sort of unparalleled levels of power, that he is chairman of everything, makes him in some sense uh, unable to pass the buck or blame anyone else were he to roll the dice and lose. He, it's a curb, actually, on adventurism. He doesn't want... He can maintain his legacy with you know sufficiently kind of belligerent saber-rattling without actually having to make a move. He can appease nationalists... Uh, and he can, you know, make himself look tough. He can, you know, improve the, the capabilities of the PLA without having to deploy it, without having to make the move. I think that that's his still his still optimal outcome. He does not want to roll a dice on an actual invasion and and come out with a bloody nose. He just risks too much right now. I think uh, I, I talked about this uh, with Jessica Chen Weiss just yesterday. Uh, she has a, a terrific article. She cites work by Taylor Fravel. I, uh, at MIT, who I suggest you you, you look at, and uh, by Andrew Chubb, who's an Australian scholar, who both looked at this relationship between um, nationalist or belligerent behavior and 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 actual um, you know nationalist rhetoric, and they found that when China is experiencing sort of domestic crises, what what uh, Andrew Chubb would call uh, legitimacy deficits, when it the conventional wisdom says that that's when they would do the rally around the flag. That's when they would wag the dog. Uh, but empirically, it looks as though, in fact, when there are such situations, China actually is less belligerent internationally. Now, now this is not a guide. I mean, past performance is not a guide for, for, for you know, but I don't think we should assume either that just because Xi Jinping is now experiencing domestic crises ranging from, you know, uh, collapsing real estate sector to, you know, uh, potential, well, uh, you know, uh, the real difficulties right now. Let's, we, see, we see them all over the place, right, from the, the zero COVID policy on down. Uh, we That does not mean he's going to, to risk something uh, adventurous. So I think that's what he's thinking. Now, he does have sort of a Carlylean sense of himself as an historic figure who, who's, who wants to, you know, make his mark in history. Uh, but I think 
he's also maybe sufficiently full of self-regard that he believes he's already done so. <laughs> well, we thought Putin had that idea as well, but he right, he's not that. Putin. I think he's not. He's these. I think that the, there's a lot of of incorrect parallels that are just sort of blithely drawn between the situation in Central Eastern Europe and in East Asia, and we should be really careful about 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 that. I think that there's a lot of uh, just sort of careless analogy drawing going on. Okay, thank you. Shelley, can I ask you the same question? And can you also talk about the future of the political lineup in Taiwan as far as you can judge? Sure. I agree with Kaiser that, uh, and, and actually with, with Kaiser and John, that you know, for Xi Jinping, Taiwan is a crisis to be avoided, not an opportunity to be seized. You know, this is the worst case scenario for Xi Jinping, especially summer of 2022, staring down the barrel of the 20th Party Congress, and there's a crisis in the Taiwan Strait. That's just the worst because the, he has no certainty about how that's going to wind up at all. So, you know, I looked at a lot of what was happening this summer and the sort of you know, they started escalating. That is to say, the uh, Beijing started escalating well before Pelosi ever went. And I think what they were trying, genuinely trying to do was to get her to call it off and to not push the situation to the absolute limit. The only way they knew to persuade the U.S., either Pelosi or I think they also hope the Biden administration would find a way to um, uh, either persuade or compel her to back off. Uh, the only way they knew how to do that was through this escalating series of threats and actions aimed at creating an understanding among the U.S. Uh, policy community that Taiwan would pay a high price for the action that a US leader was about to take. And they failed, right? They failed to stop the visit. And so now they have to follow up with, you know, they can't just sort of fold the tent and go home. So that's where this kind of guns of August thing comes from. But I think a lot of Beijing's behavior in recent years has been aimed at deterring Taiwan and the US from taking the kind of actions that would force Beijing to go to war when it's not ready, it's not confident, and it's not choosing the time and method of its uh, attack. At the same time, though, in addition to that, I see I, there's, a, there's a very unsettling dimension of the Ukraine war to me, which is... Uh, when the when the russians went into ukraine the rationale was we're going to replace you know we're going to replace the government in ukraine we're going to set up a puppet government that answers to moscow and all that kind of thing but uh, subsequently it started to look like maybe the real objective of this war is carving off the uh, eastern portion uh, solidifying Russia's hold on Crimea and ideally maybe also um, taking the southern coast of uh, Ukraine. 
So what looked like total war actually was a war with limited, more limited objectives. And that's something that I've started to worry about with respect to the PRC. Uh, They could use limited means of the, uh, you know, some combination of things that John's just been talking about to achieve a very limited goal. So we're not asking for total surrender. We don't expect you to, you know, enter into a reunification agreement today. We're just going to tell you, if you continue to buy weapons from the United States, this punishment is going to get worse and worse. And it would be really hard, I think, for the Taiwanese government to justify some of the uh, suffering short of an invasion, short of, uh, you know, aerial bombardment of Taiwan. Uh, Very hard to justify that suffering on the grounds that, well, you know, we really we have to continue to to do whatever it is that they want us to stop doing. But Taiwan stops buying weapons from the U.S. That's game over. It's not game over on day one. It's game over in five or 10 years. So you, this, the picture really is very complicated. And there are many ways that patients could enable the PRC to in the, you know, the famous phrase, win without fighting, or at least win without killing any civilians. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Pelosi and the United States want to save face. The Chinese want to save face regarding Taiwan. So what is the way forward, John Culver? What would be your advice if the White House asked you to act as an advisor to uh, to Biden from tomorrow? No pressure. Um, Your lips to God's ears. I think one, be confident in our own ability to shape events short of big demonstrative actions. Um, I, you know, Speaker Pelosi is a, the leader of a key branch of government. She can travel where she wants. Um, I think what harmed uh, U.S. reputation more was pretty clear President Biden thought the visit was a bad idea. He kind of said so publicly and it happened anyway. So that sent a signal to the Chinese that the executive branch, which is always their preferred kind of interactor, uh, can't even deliver on its own policies. Um, so I would try to start repairing that. Um, you ought to have a better understanding and communication so that when the United States speaks and acts, that we're really acting from uh, what's driving our strategic needs rather than kind of the atmosphere of the moment or the need for personal aggrandizement. Um, I think also in the United States right now, that the administration can't do much about this, sort of uh, upholding Taiwan, congressional travel to Taiwan, um, op-eds claiming we should do this, that, or the other. There's a, it's a real performative aspect um, <laughs> where you know, they're not going to have to pay the price for uh, their advice if it's ever listened to being implemented, uh, but they they can feel ennobled or help their think tank or tell Congress or the Department of Defense what they think those those consumers want to hear. Um, so you just have to really take a, a longer term view, um, understand where we are in a strategic rivalry, uh, try and define uh, how we're not going to get pulled into uh, a hot war over an issue like Taiwan, where, you know, I don't know who wins that war. I know Taiwan is destroyed. Um, so that, that's all I need to know. It's been the most Pyrrhic victory since the ancient Greeks invented the term. Um so I think that, you know, for me, a policy focused ought to be preventing war 
It doesn't mean we do fewer FONOPs or Taiwan Strait transits. It means opening, reopening. I mean, one problem and the core problem right now and the place to start is U.S.-China relations, I think, you know, are arguably today worse than they've been since normalization um, by kind of any measure about significance or depth of high-level meetings. And I'm not blaming the United States because God knows it's, a, you know, takes two to tango. Um, but it's, it's better to have regular dialogue to build some level of at least familiarity, if not trust, between core interlocutors at a level below Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. Um, and, and to build mechanisms for crisis management, because we're lucky so far we haven't had, you know, if this is the second Cold War, it's about, um, you know, 1958. We haven't had our Cuban Missile Crisis. We haven't had that fixing event where both sides stare into the abyss of annihilation and decide that they need to install some guardrails. So let's get busy on that now. You know, I said if there was a, a EP3 crisis today, it wouldn't be wrapped up in 11 days. Um, because simply the, the communication mechanisms to do that, the level of trust we had in um, 19, in 2001 doesn't exist today. Right. The access of our ambassadors in Beijing and their ambassadors here wouldn't allow it. Um, and so you have to build a basic mechanism to deal with China on the issues where we both have, have a need in order to just communicate. You don't have to agree with them. And you may not like sitting and listening to their litany of diatribe. But uh, you, you have to at least have a capacity to be heard, uh, even if you don't like what you're hearing in return. Thank you very much on, uh, for this very pessimistic note on, uh, on the whole. Maybe we should. Well, I have an optimistic note. You know, dis despite all of this, US China trade is probably going to break all records this year. So, despite. <laughs> pandemics and lockdowns and trade wars and everything. Um, and the U.S. will probably run a $300 billion trade deficit with China. Um, so at least, you know, we, we haven't fully decoupled. We don't have the capacity to wage cold or hot war yet without um, harming our own deep economic interests. But uh, keep, your, keep your eye on that. And don't forget that Taiwanese companies are right in the middle of all of that U.S. Yeah. China trade. I mean, Shelly, how many Taiwanese live in China today? Post Nobody knows. One million, right? It's always been yeah, one million. It's, so the now. number is ever increasing. Um, yeah, nobody really knows, but place. it's it's yeah. a large number. And this is a great moment to plug your book, Shelly. <laughs> Shelly wrote Kaiser. a fantastic book called The Tiger Leading the Dragon. And uh, I interviewed her about that uh, that book on, on the Seneca podcast. Uh, it's it's fantastic. Just, it's a great book. And it, it's about that um the, the very co complicated economic relationship and how important, you know, these Ch Taiwanese contract manufacturers were going to the mainland uh, in the 1990s uh, in building, you know, what we see today, uh, China's phenomenal manufacturing ecosystem. Sounds pretty good. Uh, Shelley, you should have sent me a flyer and we would have put it up <laughs> on the screen <laughs> and sales would have uh, multiplied. I think it's time for our opening our Q&A session with the audience. Can I ask Leila to ask the first question? And Leila is one of our Krosno assistants, and she is joining us tonight from Sweden, from Kult Gothenburg. Mm -hmm. Hi, everyone. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you to the panelists. This was a very great talk. It was very interesting. And a lot of the people in the Q&A Q questions were wondering what the American public view is on this issue, more so if Americans will go into combat against China 
especially with ethical issue, issues such as the Uyghur um, concentration camps? Uh, I think that's a question for Kaiser, isn't it? Oh, I, I don't know about that. I, well, no, I, I sure. Look, um, no, I guess the answer is no. I think that that uh, there's probably when it comes when push comes to shove, there's very little appetite once body bags come home. I mean, this isn't this isn't a a pushover country. This isn't liberating Kuwait. Um, this isn't you know deposing Saddam Hussein either. Uh, this is uh, you know a formidable fighting force. And it would be on their home territory, and they have really, really, um, you know, they have the DF twenty two carrier killer missiles. I mean, there are all sorts of things that it, w- it would be very, very bad, and I think we would see that right away. I think that if it really came down to it, um, no, we there, there would not be. But there's let me let me underscore that China doesn't have a ton of appetite for anything like this either. So uh, that's something I do uh, think is is. Uh, you know, an optimistic piece of it. Now, as to whether uh, things like the atrocity in, in Xinjiang bear on this at all, I think it's really important. I said something that I said in my little preamble earlier today. I think we need to understand how, well, first of all, how this is viewed in China. I mean, where things like the, 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 the crisis in Xinjiang, very, you know, quote unquote, liberal Chinese friends of mine who do under ordinary circumstances have an awful lot of empathy for what ethnic and religious minorities in Chinese in China would uh, you know endure they still understand that this issue has been weaponized by the United States that that this that it has been seized upon uh, and and ironically by people who you know who were behind the Muslim ban in the United States uh, and you know really used quite cynically deployed quite cynically now this is a problem I think for for people like me because hey I, I think that even if that is true it is still of itself egregious enough that you know it warrants our attention like we know the, the dimensions of it all the extra legal detentions are something that you know we should full-throatedly denounce um, but Doing that doesn't, I mean, I, I that suddenly I'm, I'm not able to make this, uh, you know, all these other arguments that I want to make about how, you know, we tend to blow things that China does out of proportion because we feel a psychological discomfiture at, at being surpa- surpassed by China. So uh, it's a real, it's a real problem. And when I've talked to other people who, like me who sort of sit in the political middle of this, uh, Xinjiang is, is an issue that is really vexing to us because um, I think no person with any kind of conscience uh, would fail to recognize, you know, the enormity of, of this. I mean, you don't have to use the G word uh, in, you know, to see this still as something that is not tolerable in the 21st century. Thank you. Pete, would you ask the next question, please? Sure thing. We have a hypothetical from James Evans. He's curious as to whether if push comes to shove and there is a PRC blockade of Taiwan do the speakers believe that the U.S. and its allies would violate this PRC blockade of Taiwan? And would that lead to further conflict in the region? And we could offer this question to Shelley and then get a comment from John. I actually would rather hear John speak yeah. on this because I think his um, capacity to really pick apart the military issues is much higher than mine. Thank you, though. Um, okay. Um... So a blockade under any name, an attempt to cut off, a blockade means you're cutting off all shipment into Taiwan and all shipping leaving Taiwan, both maritime and air. That's an act of war. So if China declares a blockade against Taiwan, it's going to war with Taiwan. 
uh, unless they get especially cute and announce, as we did in Cuba in 1962, what they're doing is a quarantine. And so one scenario that I worried about is that the U.S. starts to ship a lot of shiny new hardware to Taiwan, and China announces that these arms sales, these arms deliveries are going to be destabilizing the peace of tranquility on the Taiwan Strait and threaten the vital interest of China. So they announced not a blockade, but a quarantine. Um, and what they're asking and using, again, world's largest Coast Guard is the Chinese Coast Guard, plus a sizable contingent of kind of volunteers, kind of, called maritime militia, is to board and inspect all vessels and require aircraft to land first in China for inspection um, prior to going on to Taiwan. And so they wouldn't be cutting off food, energy, all the vital sustenance or, or stopping Taiwan's key exports. Uh, they would be uh, stopping weapons flow. That, that would be harder to deal with politically a bit, but I think the, uh, you know, the lawyers in the Pentagon, the State Department would quickly conclude that a quarantine under any name is an act of war if we chose, choose to call it that. And there would be enormous political pressure in the United States to do something um, in order to like to escort cargoes or to use the U.S. Navy to break a Chinese quarantine. Um, and I don't see any way that that's done without major conflict. You know, as, as Kaiser intimated, the, the PLA may not be 20 feet tall, but they have they can strike with precision anywhere within the entire Western Pacific. So any carrier strike group, any U.S. base um, could be held at risk. So at a minimum, you have the largest naval battle since World War II in some form or function. Um, and I think that that threat of escalation, I think then the idea that I tried to raise a little earlier will, may sink in. China's a quite capable nuclear power. And, you know, they've got somewhere between 150 and 200 ICBMs that can reach the United States today. And by the end of this decade, they're going to have several hundred. Now, they may not ever surpass the U.S. We have 1,500 treaty-limited ICBMs, uh, as does Russia. Uh, but the mere fact that, you know, you have capacity to not only destroy most of your urban areas in both countries, but then make the rubble bounce, um, I think is, is something that's going to have to get picked up on and thought hard about in the Oval Office, that this sounds great on paper and it's great to plan around it in the Pentagon and to run simulations all around Washington. But when push comes to shove, it's going to come down to a decision of the U.S. president fully conscious of the risks that he's going to be running, which are unlike anything that the U.S. president had, had to deal with since Harry Truman. Thank you. Is there a chance that we might exaggerate the military capabilities of the Chinese as we perhaps exaggerated what the Putin and the Russians could do in Ukraine? I think so, um, because they haven't been to war since 1979, or if you want to get technical, since the late 1980s, because they were still punishing Vietnam for a decade after their invasion. Um, and I think the Chinese worry about that. They know that they have a shiny, high, high, fairly high-tech modern military that has never been tested in battle. And so I think the leadership has doubts. Um, but the thing is, in a lot of the capabilities that I talked about, um, anti-ship ballistic missiles, long-range like missiles that can hit Guam or hit any base in Japan, there's an inherent lethality in those systems. You don't need to train to a fairly well if you've prepared to use that system and have a targeting and a launch capability that cannot be easily denied by an adversary. 
And so um, it could be that China, the things, you know, let's say in a hypothetical conflict, China, things don't go for China's way, that maybe Taiwan gets lucky and sinks a major Chinese capital ship early in a conflict. Um, the thing is, I think any war over Taiwan and between China and the United States is going to be a long war, not a short war. And China has enormous industrial capacity. You know, in the U.S., we have four shipyards that can build naval combatants like destroyers. In China, they have at least 20. They build 43% of all the shipping in the world. And they manufacture so much steel that their surplus capacity is larger than all of Europe's uh, full capacity. So things that haven't mattered, and not just beyond heroism or training of the fighting force, but industrial capacity to wage long-term war, are going to come to you know come into uh, in, into importance in a way again they haven't since World War II. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much indeed. Can we have the next question, uh, Leila, please? Yeah, of course. I believe it was Kaiser who said that the U.S. influence over the Pacific is waning. So with that, Stuart Kaplan wants to ask, uh, how would Japan, how are Japan and South Korea reacting to the growing tensions between U.S. and Taiwan now? Well, so far, I mean, I think that um, beginning with Shinzo Abe, uh, Japan has been increasingly vocal in its support for Taiwan and has aligned itself more closely. Abe himself and his successors have uh, have really pushed this idea of uh, the quad, which is of course, and and the the, the very concept of the Indo-Pacific. This this idea it actually comes out of Tokyo. Uh, so I think that's that's Japan. I mean, South Korea is a little more uh, torn. First of all, it it isn't always friendly with Tokyo. Um, but also, it it doesn't feel like it's its fight. Remember, Japan was Taiwan's colonial master for fifty years. It feels a little more invested. And you know, the southern islands of of Japan are very very close to territory that both Taiwan and China claim. Now, um, South Korea, as you, you you may remember, the the fairly newly elected conservative uh, president of 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 South Korea uh, ducked out of a meeting with Nancy Pelosi, claiming to be on vacation. Um, so I think we we can read something into that. I think they they understand that they they have there's no upside for South Korea. Even even uh, the conservative party in in South Korea sees no real upside of throwing in too uh, completely on this issue. They don't want to get squeezed. Thank you very much, Pete. Can you ask the next next question, please? Sure thing. We have a question from Andrew Gary. How do American allies in East Asia view U.S. policy? Yeah, I think that's the same Taiwan? question. The same question. Yeah. Um, Brian Keyleth is curious about what the Chinese have gained by taking over Hong Kong and what the implications that takeover might have on the Taiwan situation. And we can offer this question to Shelley. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think one thing they've gained is a humongous... A uh, long-running uh, stomachache, you know, it's swallowing poison. Um, I don't actually. I think it's unlikely that Beijing wanted to have a confrontation with Hong Kong society this early. The expectation in 1997 was that there would be a long glide path in which Hong Kong would increasingly resemble the rest of China 
and that by the end of 50 years, there would be a kind of smooth and uh, kind of uneventful merging. And when that didn't happen, it was confusing. You know, why, why did Hong Kong people, it seemed like the longer, the more time elapsed, the more feisty Hong Kong people became. And I, I think what really, caught, what catalyzed the catastrophe, the disaster in Hong Kong was the lack of leadership or the lack of authority perhaps of the Hong Kong leadership to solve a problem that everybody could see coming years ahead of time. So the, uh, the particular event that really touched off the final stage of the Hong Kong resistance was the uh, extradition law, which wasn't even officially demanded by Beijing. The uh, Hong Kong authorities kind of decided that, you know, they could probably do it. So they went for it. Uh, and that touched off this, this escalating series of protests. But... Uh, the the whether rightly or wrongly the hong kong authorities seem not to have believed that they had any authority to make a political settlement so instead they just threw the police at the protesters and said you know we got to use a police response to end this thing um and then you know you saw what happened so i don't think that this was the plan and i don't think this is uh, in any way, it's very hard for me to understand how in any way the PRC benefits from the uh, just the, the complete failure of its policy of one country, two systems of, you know, some kind of peaceful unification, like all of the stuff that Hong Kong was supposed to demonstrate um, has all failed. So can, I don't can think I it's jump easy in? to be running to ho running Hong Kong right now. Go ahead. I, I want to. I mean, I can't help it. I you know, yeah. too long being a host <laughs> of a show. I got to ask Shelley a follow up on this. You said in a recent interview, I think it might have been the one in the New Yorker. You talked about how there was a kind of dynamic at work that's that struck me as quite similar to what was happening in Hong Kong with Taiwan, with like what happened to cause the Sunflower Movement in 2012. See, because I mean, suddenly you talked about maybe that it was a victim of its own success. That you know that the, the three the Santong policy, you know, the three um, connections policy, whatever it's called, what brought a lot of mainlanders in brought a lot of mainland investment in you know there was the, the threat of this investment uh new investment law and i saw i saw a lot of parallels to hong kong can you can you talk a little bit about that i thought it was fascinating yeah i mean i think uh what the what beijing can never quite get its mind around it, or you know what the leaders in beijing cannot get their minds around is that they are not beloved in any of these places, <laughs> that the places on their periphery are at best skeptical and at worst actively hostile. So their idea that maximum engagement, you know, lots of people going back and forth, lots of mainlanders coming in and out of Hong Kong, lots of mainlanders coming across the Taiwan Strait, that this is how we're going to show 
the people in Hong Kong and Taiwan, respectively, that, you know, they're part of China, that, that this is great, that, that this is a family get together, you know, this is a reunion that we're having. The opposite is true, both in Hong Kong and in Taiwan, the more mainland people came in, the more the local people realized, whoa, if this trend were to continue without limit, we would be completely swallowed up drowned out, neutralized, and disappeared in our own land. And so, you know, you see there's a wonderful Replacement documentary. Theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a wonderful documentary by um, Malti Kiding, a professor in the UK, about the localism movement. And it doesn't always reflect well on Hong Kong people. There's a lot of that kind of, you know, you said replacement theory, Kaiser. There's a lot of kind of ethnocentrism or um, ugly stereotypes. Yeah, thank you. But that's the reality of the world we live in, you know. I think we need another program on Hong Kong, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> we talked a lot about the military situation and whether or not the United States would get involved and how it would get involved if the United States decided Taiwan is not worth it to provoke a world war, a nuclear war, and whoosh, would wash its hands of it. Would it matter in the end? Would it mean the end of American superpower status? Or would it like the withdrawal from Vietnam, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, in the end, matter little except for the people locally affected. John, sorry. I think it would, it would be a foolish power. I mean, it's a hypothetical. I'll try not to fight the hypothetical, but th that's kind of a, a you know a Hobbesian choice that no administration would want to make. Mm -hmm. um, so they're, they're not going to, uh, that, that's why we have this arcane and complicated set of you know touchstones for, for China-Taiwan policy from the three communiques uh, and the difference between China's um, one China principle and U.S. one China policy. Um, and uh, then the Taiwan Relations Act, which actually isn't a treaty with Taiwan at all. It's an agreement within our own branches of government about Taiwan policy. Um, and, uh, you know, that's one reason, you know, again, it argues in favor of the current policy of strategic ambiguity, because if you put yourself in a position where you have to make these Hobbesian choices, by definition, you won't like what the world looks like when you come out on the other side. So if you, you know, if you try to hedge and announce a less vocal support for Taiwan's, you know, defense, Congress is going to make sure that you remember and have the Taiwan Relations Act, you know, tattooed on your back or something. <laughs> um, and so it becomes a, a domestic political issue very quickly and one that I don't think any president of either party or in, any other party could could actually survive, you know, it, it would be seen as a litmus test of will and strategic rivalry with China. Um, I think, you know, if, if I stop hiding, fighting the hypothetical, and let's say we get a really interesting president, not like the last one, please, but interesting in a new way, that um, they would probably still try to practice the ambiguity. They might come out and say that, you know, what we want from China to do is announce that they're going to uh, forswear forceful unification under any circumstances and work toward unification only in peaceful terms through all of the links that have been building over the last 30 years. Well, the US wants to set an example, so we're going to announce that um, short of China's attempt to compel unification by force, we're gonna become more moderate in our military posture. Um, assuming there isn't wholesale you know, domestic uh, backlash against that, 
Um, you could probably start to work towards something like a basis of trust, but it would be so fraught and really come down to a tangle of public opinions and domestic politics in China, in the United States and on Taiwan. No, I also meant geopolitically as far as the American allies are concerned, what they might think, uh, what would Japan, the European, South Korea think about, you know, basically uh, selling out Taiwan. Well, you, you would never agree and call it a salad of Taiwan. You'd say that you're trying to uh, adjust policy to prevent war. And so what you're going to do is double down on offshore deterrence. You're going to strengthen your alliances and the, the de de demonstrable kinds of things in alliances between Japan, Australia, South Korea, and then all the allies and partners, you know, around China's periphery. It would be, you know, you could say you're going to put the, you know, the, the quad and the AUKUS and Indo-Pacific strategy on steroids as a way to manage peaceful competition with China and avoid, you know, disastrous war. Um, and that's about the best face I think you could put on it. I don't think that there's uh, a single track, you know, where the U.S. says we're out of Asia um, and, you know, watches that go down gracefully unless things have gotten so dire in the United States that there's domestic appeal to that. Okay, thanks very much. We need another question, Pete. Was it your turn or was it Leila's turn? I've forgotten. Uh, I'll let Leila take the next question. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, with that, Jing is asking, because we talked about how Taiwan doesn't have enough military power to defend itself against China, and that this is essentially just a game between the U.S. and China and how Taiwan serves as a pawn. So Jing wants to know, is there any way Taiwan can choose to stay out of this game? <laughs> That's a question for Shelley, clearly. <laughs> it's very difficult because Taiwan is dependent on the U.S. for its defense. So there was quite a bit of close parsing of Taiwanese official statements and semi-official statements ahead of the Pelosi visit. Uh, because obviously the big public statements were like, yes, of course, you know, <laughs> this is great for us. But the foreign ministry of Taiwan never said anything about it. The uh, Taiwanese representative office in Washington never said anything about it. And the uh, official representative of President Tsai's party in Washington, D.C., gave quotes to media that were expressing reservations about the visit. So, you know, if you wanted to, you could see that, it, that the Taiwan government, the Thai administration was not encouraging the Pelosi visit in the way that you would expect if they were genuinely understanding it in the way that she said she intended it. Um, And yet, after it happened, and, you know, the PRC had the big response and everything, a lot of people in Washington were saying, oh, my gosh, I can't believe the Taiwans dragged us into this. <laughs> you know, the Taiwans did not drag anybody anywhere. The Taiwans, as they're called, were dragged into this by U.S. political actors. So that just shows you how hard it is for Taiwan to stay out of the middle. And if we had had a president in Taiwan like 
for example, the previous president, Mainjo, who had perhaps been willing to be more vocal, even privately, um, you, know, you know that there would be people in Washington then saying, you know, these ungrateful Taiwanese politicians do not see all the beautiful things we do for them. So, you know, Taiwan is really damned if they do, damned if they don't situation. Um, and to me, that makes it all the more incumbent on American leaders to, to think about what they're doing and to not allow themselves to be uh, influenced by factors that are actually not relevant. Thank you very much. Can we have the next question from Pete now? Yeah, so we have a question about Larry from Larry Manal. He's curious about kind of the political dynamic of Taiwan here in the U.S., specifically uh, how it impacts electoral politics in this country. So essentially, Larry is, is asking how much of an impact would Taiwan have, say, in these midterms or just in future elections as it appears to be at the center of global conversations? That's for Kaiser, I'm sure. <laughs> Thanks. I get somehow I get all the American domestic political ones, but um, <laughs> no, I, I think that, that we know have to understand it as defensive, not uh, an offensive thing. Uh, to to stake out a really sort of uh, gung ho pro Taiwan position, um, if especially if you're a democratic politician, is basically a move to uh, guard your your right flank against criticism that you're soft on China. Um, that's you know the long and short of it, right there, um, and. You know, on the right, of course, uh, it, it's just sort of consistent with uh, the kind of chest beating, uh, you know, unapologetic uh, insistence on maintaining American global hegemony, which is, you know, pretty on brand for the other party. Mm -hmm. Thank you. If there was a serious crisis over Taiwan, another fourth or fifth Taiwan trade crisis in a really serious way, would the European allies stand with the United States or would they try to distance themselves? Because, as you know, the export market China is highly important. They don't want to antagonize the Chinese either. Klaus, I feel like you should answer that one. <laughs> well, I'm asking you. <laughs> I'd like to have your input. I, I don't know the mind of the European allies. I, I certainly wouldn't be in a position to speculate. I'm going to pass to John. Okay. Thanks, Kaiser. Um, I think the Ukrainian conflict has kind of been enlightening, um, where uh, I think there was some reluctance in European Union, um, especially, you know, you had the United States warning since October, November of 2021 that the Russians are going to invade Ukraine. And I think even the government of Ukraine did not quite believe us. Um, so when, when it happened, you know, you actually saw a snapback where the sanctions that the US and the European Union threatened in advance of the Russian invasion um, actually paled in comparison to the ones that we actually implemented. Um, and so there was actually a, a kind of a, a, a strengthening of spine, if you will, at least in the economic domain. Um, I, I think for the U.S., Taiwan might be a little more fraught. It would a lot would depend on how the crisis started and a general perception about like who was to blame. Um, because the, the one thing that most of our allies in Asia and then beyond have assumed is this is an American problem. And what they want from Washington, first and foremost, is competent management of it. Um, and so in the last administration, and to the extent in this one, what you're seeing is more this recognition that we're in a strategic rivalry, and that it kind of drives the domestic discussion. Um, and so it doesn't take very much political courage right now to be critical of China and very supportive of Taiwan. 
Um, in a crisis, again, the dynamic is going to shift. And I think the Allies, especially if the war in Ukraine is still going on, if there's, you know, God forbid, another pandemic or residual COVID, the economic situation is already so dark. I mean, I think any, you know, major crisis between the U.S. and China that looked like it was headed toward conflict, um, I, I think you'd see an unparalleled, you know, global recession. And so a lot of the things that have been leveraged for China, leveraged for the United States, are going to be weighed by our allies. Um, and what they're going to want is, I think, some sign that it's not just running on its own rails, that there's competent management and at least restraint at some level on both sides. And because the U.S. is open and democratic, I think more of the pressure will be brought to bear on the U.S. to find a solution in a way that is difficult to kind of in enforce on China. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think I get the feeling that uh, both uh, Beijing and Moscow hope that in the long run, the Europeans wouldn't have the stamina to uh, endure the crisis, to put up with something they're not really immediately affected by. Personally, I think that that probably is mistaken because the transatlantic alliance, also the American export market, is so hugely important, even more than the Asian export market, if you only talk in economic terms, ignoring history, cultural links, political, democratic links. So I, I would say, maybe I hope, maybe it's wishful thinking, but I would say that in the end, the Europeans will not allow themselves to be divided from the US, certainly not the major countries. There will be some outliers, but not the major countries. But maybe that's just wishful thinking. Uh, uh, Leila, uh, can we have the next question? Yeah, of course. Um, anonymous attendee talked about how we talked a lot about what military leaders should and should not do, but they want to know more what you guys uh, recommend that US policymakers should do just in case of a Chinese force aggression. Should I start? I mean, I, sure. my, my thing, I mean, I, I think that um, before we even get to the point where we have to respond to actual aggression, we should sort of try to forestall that by good old fashioned diplomacy. I think that, um, you know, Shelley said, and as John said, we, we can't just have uh, our diplomatic contacts happening at the highest level. Just, it can't just be an occasional phone call between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden, it can't be Anthony Blinken meeting with, with Wang Yi or you know, Yang Jiechi meeting with Jake Sullivan. It that's just not enough. We need to, to well ultimately bring back something like the S and D the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, which uh, was a, a, a sort of through the whole year at many levels of of, of bureaucracy, at many levels of, of, and then you know always accompanied by quite robust Track Two dialogues happening uh, in parallel. What um, I think we we can get there, but I mean, I suggest you you read this article by Jessica Chen Weiss, and maybe even go back and visit this book by a guy named Lyle Goldstein, who used to be at the U.S. Naval War College, who wrote a book called "Meeting China Halfway." And in it, I mean, it may sound a little bit um, you know pie in the sky, but he lays out a series of sort of escalating spirals of trust where we offer contingent. Uh, you know, uh, compromises. We will give on this issue in the the explicit expectation that China will reciprocate. We just have to actually lay out these things. Here's how it goes. We do this, then you do that, then we do this, which is even better, and you do that, and then uh, we 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 rebuild uh, what has been really, you know, I mean, completely obliterated through four years of Trump, and then now a year and a half of Biden. Thanks very much. Can we have another question? Um... Pete, I think. 
Yes, of course. We have a question from Jonathan Tay, who kind of is taking a positive outlook on the situation. Uh, he asks that, is it possible that these, the situation can be seen as a positive because it encourages a diplomatic solution? Uh, if not, is this silver lining just overshadowed by how tense and how hot things are right now with Chinese-American uh, relations? Who would like and, to take that question? I mean, I suppose... If I'm bleeding to death and somebody comes at me with a tourniquet, that's a positive development. But gosh, it would have been so much better to um, get out of the water before the shark bit me in the first place, right? Uh, so yes, there may be some turn to diplomacy in the hope of forestalling an absolute disaster, but I, you know, I, I have to say, it's hard not to think that the actions of some American politicians, they could have made some different choices. You guys have to pick up Shelly's next book. Prevented this, prevented us from getting to this point. Shelly's next book is called The Sword in the Temple Rafters and the Bloody Tourniquet. Uh, And it's great. It's full of all her best analogies ever deployed on zoom calls it yeah that was amazing. Well, serious here uh, uh, uh kaiser it's a serious topic <laughs> uh, but i have a good question i just noticed from uh, prabra fernandez who asked uh, does china actually have a monroe doctrine like the united States has and uh, is it allowed to have one should it have one uh, who would I, like would say, I would I'll, I'll take it, but I'll probably over-militarize it like I do most things. I was a military analyst for most of my career, um, a recovering military analyst. Uh, short answer, no, uh, especially as an enunciated you know, uh, policy that they will uh, take action to prevent any foreign, I don't know, footholds in their hemisphere. But in a sense, with, you know, I, I don't subscribe to a view that's very uh, sort of common among some intellectuals that China wants to return to a tributary system. I think most of the people that talk about that don't understand the tributary system. Um, what they want, though, is, I'll use the term in an in a, in a, in a international relations way, they want us to hegemony, especially in East Asia, um, meaning, uh, I think, in the softest form that uh, China's interests are taken into account by all of its neighbors. Uh, it doesn't mean everybody that no one ever does anything to displease China, but it means that they think about it hard and they understand that there will be a cost that China can impose if they adopt policies or pursue relationships that China uh, thinks are bad for itself. Um, and I, I think that, you know, part of their build of this term, they love to use comprehensive national power, uh, becoming the largest trading nation, largest, well, yeah, largest trading nation, largest manufacturing power in the world with deep inroads into all of Southeast Asia, um, you know, deep economic relations with Japan, South, you know, there's a much shorter list of country where China isn't the largest trading partner than there is of, of those who are. Uh, that Part of that is sway. It's the ability to shape government opinion, shape policy without the resort to force, but always backed by the idea that if China did resort to force, that it would probably prevail in less, um, every uh, one of its neighbors kind of banded together to, to defend it. Thank you very much indeed. 
Leila, would you ask the next question, please? Yeah, of course. So Oliver Stelling is claiming that a lot of foreign policy experts of China haven't even stepped foot in the country in years. So with that, he is asking what impact might this reduced fieldwork and academic research in China have on U.S.-China relations in Taiwan? Well, I, I think this is a really big problem. Um, we've had, we being, you know, American scholars who deal with these issues, who work on US, uh, Chinese foreign policy, also Taiwan, have had a lot of Zoom calls over the last two years, especially as tensions have accelerated. We are talking. It's not like we we've lost contact with them altogether. Um, but it's really different. You know, the I remember a very important and famous person in, in uh, U.S.-China relations. One time I was at a conference with her and there were a lot of um, speakers from the mainland who were there and a lot of and everybody had like three minutes to talk. It was a very um, sort of superficial event. And I noticed she's not listening to any of the speeches. She's out in the audience talking to the Chinese scholars. And I realized it's because they don't say anything interesting when they're on the stage. They say something interesting during the coffee break or after dinner or in the car. And so she didn't after even drinks. bother. <laughs> yeah, after drinks. So, you know, that's what we're not having. And I think it's it's a very significant uh, damper on our ability to understand one another and to communicate. Thank you, Pete. Ben Sunil asks, will there ever be a future where a more amenable Chinese government can create its own sphere of influence in East Asia with willing participants? And Kaiser will offer this question to you. Uh, who can say? I'm, I, it, we're certainly not on track for it right now. Uh, I think that um, there's no reason to, to believe <laughs> that would be so. But, you know, history is a very contingent thing. There are all sorts of twists and turns that are completely unforeseeable. So I, I don't think that's an answerable question, I'm afraid, although it's, it's a fun one to think about. Thank you. Uh, can I just say that we have plenty of um, more questions which have been asked, but I would suggest that we perhaps finish uh, at uh, 7.30 or something like that. That gives us just less than 10 minutes to deal with uh, some of the other questions. Uh, Leila, if you would like to summarize some of the questions which are perhaps similar, then feel free to do that. Yeah, there was a few people asking about how, if there was a military escalation, how could this impact the Chinese oil supply? I think that's all you, John. Well, uh, China is highly reliant on imported oil. Most of it comes by sea from the Persian Gulf. Um, although they've diversified and taken advantage of Russia's current predicament to uh, somewhat expand their oil and gas transfers from Russia. But the thing is, it's not like gas that Russia and oil that Russia is not shipping to Europe can go to China. Those come from different fields and use different pipelines. So they're highly dependent. Um, the thing is, if there's a war, kind of the U.S. hasn't experienced this since World War II, there would be rationing. China has strategic petroleum reserves just like we do, probably like we do about a 90-day supply. But if they're rationing and focusing on using domestic production. Uh, they've made huge investments in green technology. 24% um, of all the cars sold in China this year are electric. Um, uh, they could probably weather, and they could do all other things countries have done 
when they're denied resources uh, like energy, which has moved to coal gasification. China has lots of coal. Um, so they, they would have options. It would, you know, on the one hand, it would be bad for the economy, but the war would be bad for the economy. So it would just be part of the new condition. And um, uh, so I, I think, you know, then the, the U.S. would have to carry out basically a naval blockade of Chinese energy supply for as long as the conflict lasted. And of course, all that time, China would be developing more means if Russia is still their primary strategic partner. I think they would do everything they could to tap that even harder and get more energy from Russia. Um, and then probably deal with unsavory countries that as long as it doesn't require oversee transshipment that the U.S. could deny. Thank you very much. Pete, feel also free to uh, summarize a number of questions. Sure. We have a question from Pravati Fernandez. She's curious if a Chinese uh, takeover of Taiwan is inevitable. How, what, to what extent can the U.S. delay such a takeover by pressuring China's economy without having self-inflicted wounds on the U.S. economy? Uh, we've touched on this earlier, but for whichever speaker, feel free to hop in. To zero extent, right? Right To zero extent, nothing the U.S. can do to pressure China economically does not blow back on American consumers. Mm -hmm. Thank yeah, you. That's, that's the answer. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all agree. <laughs> Leila, can you ask another question? Yeah, we pretty much covered most of the questions, but there's a very like open-ended one from Ved Sunil, and he's asking how much of a problem does China really pose internationally if this were to escalate into a military conflict? Oh. Well, I mean, I certainly have thoughts on this. I, I yeah, go ahead. And not not just about Taiwan, but I, I think this is the big question uh, that that we all, anyone who who undertakes to you know to this is to form policy or to even form their own views on on China it has to wrestle with this question of what does China want in the world? What is China actually trying to do? Does it want to uh, to truly displace the United States as the global hegemon? And uh, you know, I, I think most people. I mean, although weirdly that idea seems to be quite current in the Beltway, uh, most reasonable people think no that it does not maybe at most it it, it desires a kind of uh, a seat at the table certainly globally but also you know a, a, a maybe a regional hegemony maybe you know something sort of commensurate with its place historically which it, it held for a very very long time as the dominant um, both uh, economic and cultural and, and military force in in the eastern part of the of the Eurasian landmass now um this is this is something un unfortunately that there's very little consensus on in the United States, or if there is, I'm afraid that they're they're drawing very wrong conclusions. That there there there's this idea that China in fact has this hundred year plan for global domination. Uh, that 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 um, everything is done with this great master plan in mind, and this is even coming out of some otherwise quite sensible people. Um, I think that what we should really understand is that. China is actually quite beleaguered and and be, is very ad hoc uh, and responds to uh, both internal and external stimuli. Uh, you know, just as we do, that there is no master plan. They're muddling through. They're crossing the river, the famous Chinese expression, by feeling for stones all the time. That uh, 
what we do matters an awful lot to what, what, I mean, we are the big other actor. So how we talk about China affects what China does very much. So I think, um, unfortunately, we live in this gigantic glass house our, and we're all carrying around megaphones. So, you know, Amer- America's share in the global media discourse uh, is, is very, very loud. And uh, the, the Anglophone media, so dominated by the United States, uh, gets to sort of set the tone for a lot of things to China's great frustration. But uh, we, we need to wield that power pretty carefully. I think we need, uh, my job in the world is to try to steer public discourse on China back into a more rational direction. Thank you, Kaiser. I think we can conclude, and I'm sure we will all agree, that tension is escalating, that that tension can lead to dangerous conflict. Uh, the, the question, my final question to all three of our presenters would be, what can we do to prevent that such a, a rivalry, uh, enmity is co- uh, escalating into military conflict, which would be horrible, a terrible, probably nuclear war between the world's uh, two largest powers. But I think both sides, as you rightly said just now, Kaiser, the United States is doing its bit to further escalate tension. But the Chinese are not innocent either. We look at Xinjiang, we look at uh, unfair economic competition to some extent, to the uh, uh, surveillance state and the uh, increase uh, of uh, an authoritarian government, not just domestically, but also in its foreign policy uh, dimension. So essentially, both sides seem to have a lot of possibility to do something about the escalating tension. But the big question is, of course, what should be done to avoid that tension escalating into a terrible war? If you have the solution, I will pass your solution on to the White House right right tonight. But please let me know, what is your solution for avoiding this escalation of tension collapsing into a major war. John, would you like to start? Um, first, make that a priority. You know, say that while we're in a rivalry with China, and if I could wax a little philosophical in 10 seconds, we're currently in a formative stage of this rivalry. We saw how long that took with the old Cold War, with the first Cold War. Um, and at the some point, we're, we're going to reach the conclusion that competition itself is not a strategy. And so we're going to have to talk to the Chinese um, we're going to have to start to manage tensions rather than just use them for political gain. Um, and we're going to have to try and get China to agree that a core goal is to prevent war. Um, we can still do a lot, uh, you know, even aggressively within that, within that kind of, uh, those kind of lanes. Um, but we have to understand what's at stake here, that um, things that we're doing for performative reasons could have real world consequences. Um, and as we get, we need to rebuild confidence here. I mean, I still think there's no threat that China poses to the United States that's as dire to sort of domestic political frame that we're experiencing. Um, and there's nothing we can do for Taiwan if we don't maintain our democracy at home. Thank you. Kaiser, would you like to come in? Yeah, I, I completely uh, heartily agree with everything that John just said. I would add to that that leadership really matters. Tone setting really matters in the United States as well as in China. In China, you know, there's a little more direct control over media messaging. And I would hope, you know, if I could speak directly to them that, you know, if you want, as they profess to, uh, to dial down the temperature, to lower the temperature, there's a lot that they can do uh, through their management of social media, through their own rhetoric to do that. And at the same time, the United States, I think that collectively 
people who, you know, have the microphone, who, you know, who are influencers in American policy and in media circles, uh, people at think tanks need to take some of the responsibility for that to back down on some of this, this sort of crazy rhetoric uh, and, to understand that lowering the temperature is ultimately in our interest as well to, to forestall uh, a crisis. Look, we're heading towards some kind of a a crisis, and at at that point, you know, we can either stare into the abyss, as John said, and then back off, uh, or we might go careening headlong into it, which is obviously just a terrible thing. But either way, let's not get to that point. If we can, we see it coming. Let's let's steer away. Thank you. What is your advice to both governments, to both uh, countries' leaders, Shelley? Well, I would just say that I think that things really went south when uh, in 2007, 2008, the great financial crisis, when many people in the Chinese Communist Party decided that the West, led by the U.S., was in terminal decline and that it that it was China's opportunity to step forward and uh begin to occupy more space in the international community. And while I think that they have been shocked to learn that the West is in fact not in terminal decline across all the dimensions, sometimes I feel like the U.S. is in pretty terminal decline. So my advice to the U.S. would be to get your act together, stop doing stupid stuff that's counterproductive, that makes people in other countries think democracy is not a good system and, you know, become a better country, one that others want to aspire to be like and to follow. Otherwise, uh, you're just giving the game away. And, you know, so I think I don't have advice for the PRC government. <laughs> they don't need my advice. Um, but my advice to every American is stop being such a knucklehead and grow up. <laughs> Thank you very much, Shelley. We will pass on that uh, information <laughs> Thank you. The, to the powers there are in the country. I would like to thank very much all our three speakers for a very insightful and enlightening discussion. Shelley Rigger, we just heard, Kaiser Kuh, and also, of course, John Culver, particularly for John's military and intelligence advice, Shelley for uh, her insights on Taiwan, and uh, uh, Kaiser's insights on geopolitical rivalry between China and uh, the United States and the rest of the world. I would also like to thank Lilia, uh, Lelia and Pete for their uh, great assistance with the questions in particular. And I would like to thank our audience for staying with us for over two hours. And most of you did stay with us and listen patiently. And ho hopefully you all found it very interesting. So thank you uh, again uh, um, for your contributions. And thank you again for being with us for yet another exciting Krasno event series. And I would like to say that our next event is on September 13, when General Ben Hodges the former commanding officer uh, of the U.S. Army in Europe, will talk to us about the military and strategic situation in Ukraine and between Ukraine and the Russian aggressor. That also promises to be a highly interesting event, September 13. Thank you very much tonight for to all our three speakers and to the audience. And I wish you a good evening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.
Today's big picture comes from the Krasno Global Events Series at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you to our speakers, Kaiser Kuo, Shelley Rigger, and John Culver, and to you, our audience, for listening today.